Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, again, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. Uh, glad this weekend to have um, my sister in town, my brother-in-law. Um, happy to have them. If you've met, been around, met some of my other family, this is about um, halfway through. We, we've just crossed that mark. And, um, and, and Jake and Naomi are special to us. For one, I got to, I got to perform their wedding. But um, beyond that, they're special to us because, because while Naomi is my sister, Jake is Catherine's nephew. And it's totally legal. <laughs> Quite on the up and up. Uh, but you can imagine this week even as I walked into the office with the, the three, four kids trailing behind me. And Sandy was standing nearby, our administrative assistant, our church administrator, uh, while we're talking about what are we going to call Jake? Cousin or uncle? And... Sandy was taken back by this and just told her, you have to understand the context. You got to understand the backstory, which, uh, which in a lot of ways leads into what we're going to be talking about today. See, we were into our series on the gospel according to Jonah, where beyond just getting into the details of this book, our focus has been on becoming better readers of the Bible. And each week we've been looking at a particular principle of how to do that. We looked at the first principle um, that we called stop and listen, that before digging into the details of a book like Jonah, uh, you have to best, it's best to become familiar with that book beginning to end, right? By reading it beginning to end. Our second principle then last week we looked at was called staying on the line. That if you want to come to God's word, if you want to come to it rightly, we have to come with a commitment to being faithful to it, to be committed to, to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, today our third principle is called traveling instructions, and it's all about understanding the backstory, understanding the original context in which a passage was written and to which it was addressed. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Again, this third principle called traveling instructions. And for that, we're going to dive into the only other Old Testament passage where Jonah shows up. So if you have a, a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, where I'm going to begin by reading from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Again, the book of 2 Kings, it's right in the middle of all those divided books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. And you can follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, 
which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, and how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we Look at the backstory of this man named Jonah. I pray that we would understand better what an anomaly it was that in his later years, rather than speaking for you, he ran from you. That rather than follow you, he fled from you. And that we would begin to understand why. And how thankful we can be that Jesus was a better Jonah. And that by his grace, we can be too. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in 1994, uh, South Africa witnessed the landmark transition from the pro-apartheid government under the National Party to its anti-apartheid counterpart. And on May 10th, Nelson Mandela was sworn in as the country's first president to be elected in a fully representative democratic vote. Some of you remember that moment when that government fell and another one rose in its place. Well, at that same time, a young businessman was traveling around South Africa, around Africa generally, exploring investment interests in the continent's first underwater fiber optic network, what would prove to be a breakthrough in connecting this part of the developing world to the global phenomena that we know as the Internet. And with its recent transitions in government, South Africa was one of this young businessman's first stops. And in his own estimation, when he arrived and was able to meet with the the higher-ups of of government and technology, he gave a knockdown presentation with all of the the elaborate spreadsheets and the the, the finely um, uh, analyzed presentation Analysis, all the fine analysis that could go with it. And yet, afterwards, 
he was approached by a senior minister who, who took him aside and asked him at the request of Mandela himself to table the idea of a fiber optic ring around the continent and to instead focus his attention on running a single line between South Africa and the rather insignificant country of Malaysia, which made no business sense. Not only would it have cost an astronomical amount, but there was no way that the traffic over that one line between South Africa and Malaysia could ever justify its construction. But what this young businessman didn't understand was that for South Africa in general and Mandela in particular, the link to Malaysia had little to do with economics and very much to do with a geopolitical situation, a link that had helped overturn apartheid to begin with. And though that's not the direction they ultimately ended up going, it was the backstory that made sense of this rather surprising request. And the lesson learned by this young businessman who now writes often for the Harvard Business Review is that context is indeed always king. If you want to understand, you've got to understand the backstory. What we're going to find today is that when it comes to understanding the intricacies of a book like Jonah in the Bible, it's very much the same, which is why this principle called traveling instructions is so important. So if you take out that insert in your bulletin, uh, let me just take a minute to explain what, what traveling instructions is all about. And the idea is this, if we want to rightly understand the meaning of God's word for us today, we've got to first travel back to understand what it meant in the past. And particularly, we've got to understand what it would have meant for how it would have been heard by the people to whom it was originally written. Because as much as the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. Do you catch the difference? As much as the Bible was written for us, that God intended it to speak beyond its original audience, it wasn't written to us. Because last I checked, we're not Romans. We're not Corinthians. We're not Israelites wandering in the desert or returning from exile. So there's a chronological and, and cultural gap between us and the text. And we've got to do the hard work of overcoming that, of, of stretching beyond that back to when this text was actually written if we're going to understand it rightly. If we're going to understand the, the Bible rightly today, we've got to travel back to understand first what it meant in its original context. But it's worth asking, why is this important? And the reason is this, taking the shortcut of applying the Bible directly to our lives today leads to three vital errors. First, it leads to the error of misunderstanding the Bible's meaning. 
that disregarding its original context, we, we can actually twist the Bible to mean something its authors and therefore God never meant. Second, taking that shortcut leads to our misapplying the Bible's message. That not caring enough to understand what it meant for those it was written to, we make all sorts of mistakes when it comes to us, the ones it was written for. And then third, it leads to the error of then misleading others to do the same. That ultimately, for us and for those God has placed under our care or given us opportunity to speak into their lives, that we miss out on the Bible's transforming power in our lives. That we subtly stray from the line and then lose sight of what it looks like to live rightly under God. It's like those who take Philippians 4.13 as an inspiration for for hitting the the game-winning home run. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When, when that's really not what Paul meant. When really that, that, that verse is Paul's conclusion that he's learned the secret to being content in everything. Whether others stand with him or not. Support him or not. Partner with him or not. That no matter what, Christ will never fail him. And beyond that, that Paul, being under house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial where he'll he'll very likely be put to death for preaching the resurrection of Christ, that it's still no sweat for him. Why? Because this declaration at the end of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is really just the other side of what he says at the beginning of Philippians. That for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And they can't touch me. But you have to understand it rightly if you're going to understand it at all. Because it has very little to do with hitting game-winning home runs. So this idea of traveling instructions is vitally important. But how does it work? Well, there's three basic steps. And the first is what not to do. That if we're, we're going to understand God's word rightly and, and we're going to give it its right place in our lives, we can't take the direct route from God's word to us today. Sometimes doing that doesn't do as much damage as it could. That doesn't mean we should just keep on doing it. So second... If we're not going to take the direct route, we ought to begin by understanding what a passage meant in its original context. If we really want to unlock the power of God's word, we need to go back to what it meant in its original context. And then only then, third, should we make the move to apply the meaning to us today. So to summarize, before jumping to us today, we ought to first understand what a passage or a book or a collection of books meant in their original context. And this idea of an original context really has two sides to it. The, the literary context of, of how every verse is part of a passage that's part of a book that's often part of a collection of books in either the Old or the New Testaments, and finally part of the Bible as a whole. It's literary context and then the historical context. That includes the time in which the book was was written and the situation to which it was addressed. 
Later on in our series, we're going to actually circle back to the literary context of the book of Jonah. Today, we're going to actually focus our attention. We're going to spend some time looking at the historical context. Because if we're going to understand the book of Jonah, it would be helpful to have a little more understanding of the person of Jonah. Which is why this passage in 2 Kings is so important. So again, open up your Bibles, um, if you haven't already, to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14. Like I said, this is the only other passage in the Old Testament where Jonah shows up and is therefore where we must turn if we're to understand the backstory of this prophet and where the author of the little book that bears Jonah's name probably expected us to turn. Because if you remember, Jonah's introduced in the book of Jonah as if he's someone that, that, that we already know. We're not told where he comes from or, or, or when he prophesied, just that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So it seems like we're supposed to be already familiar with him. And the only other place that we would be familiar with him is from this cameo appearance in the book of Kings. So, so again, turn there if you can. And I want to point out three little details in this passage that ought to affect how we understand and then apply what's taking place in the book of Jonah. And though we're going to see this come up a few times in our series, I'm, I'm thinking right now of how we understand and apply what we looked at last week, of what we make of this man who hears the word of the Lord telling him to go to Nineveh but rises and flees to Tarshish. Three details. And the first is that Jonah has heard from God before. In fact, he was in the business of hearing from God. Hearing God's word for himself and then sharing God's word with others. Because Jonah was a prophet. Talks in 2 Kings of, of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, coming to the throne of Israel, situated in Samaria, and reigning for a pretty impressive 41 years. But that for his 41 years on the throne, all that could be said of him in 2 Kings 14.24 was that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And a very particular type of evil. Because we're told that he did not depart from the sins of another Jeroboam, who was the first to reign on that Samaritan throne. Some of you are probably familiar with the story of that first Jeroboam who, who started as a servant of Solomon. Do you remember the story? That a prophet in those days said um, Jeroboam would be given the throne over 10 of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, really 10 of the, the 11 that, that had territories. Because Solomon had led the nation into serving other gods. And that through that prophet, in that story, God promised Jeroboam that he would build up Jeroboam's house if only he followed God's ways, unlike Solomon had. Yet when the first Jeroboam finally came to the throne... He was so worried about his people going back to, to follow Solomon's sons that he led them into idolatry himself. 
His fear was that people would go down to Jerusalem in the, the southern kingdom to worship at Jerusalem's temple. And that they'd naturally prefer to serve the king who ruled there. So Jeroboam I set up at the borders of his own kingdom, one on the north and one on the south, two golden calves, saying to Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Sound familiar? As if the, the, the sins from the days of Moses had lived on b- below the surface till the days of Jeroboam I. And what we find in 2 Kings 14 is that they lived on still till the days of Jeroboam II. We probably do well then to recognize that sins like these live on below the surface in our days as well. It says in verse 24, Jeroboam, the, the son of Joash, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebah, which he made Israel to sin. And yet in the midst of evil, God spoke grace. It says in verse 25 that, that this Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah which reestablished the borders of what, to what they were before the kingdom was divided. It was a, a golden age. But, but notice that, that the one who, who gets the credit for this is not Jeroboam, but Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, that, that Jeroboam did this according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. Which means when we get to the book of Jonah, the message is not so much that Jonah ought to have listened to the word of the Lord, though he should have but rather the emphasis is on the question of why a guy who listened to God before, who was in the business of listening to God, of hearing God's word himself and sharing God's word with others, why a guy like that wouldn't listen when God spoke again. And the question is only highlighted by a second detail. That this word of the Lord spoken through Jonah, son of Amittai, that was then fulfilled by, by Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was itself a word of grace. So first, Jonah had heard God's word. Second, Jonah had known God's grace. Isn't that amazing? Jonah knew God's grace and knew it intimately. He was an instrument of grace. We're told in verse 26 that this reestablishment of the borders of Israel and the the respite that Israel experienced from the international attacks upon its people, we're told that it happened because the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. None that followed God. None like David, the free whose faith in God drove him to a faithfulness to God's people. Or even like Jeroboam I, the slave or bond of Solomon, who had just as much opportunity to start out on that track, who seemed to 
that he would have gone that direction had it not been for his own worry. Why? Because it says the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. A word of grace in the midst of an evil time. So why does a guy like Jonah, a servant of God, a a prophet of the Most High, whose whole career, as far as we know, was defined to this point as being an instrument of grace, a voice of grace, a prophet of grace, why does a guy like that run when God's Word comes again? Knowing the backstory, you ought to be much more surprised when he starts heading for Tarshish. And I think the answer is only finally found in a third detail. That as much as Jonah, as much as Jonah had heard God's word and had known God's grace, he had in his own people seen no change. Think of the career of this man. We're told of this golden age of national prosperity. I don't know about America, but Israel was great again. That under Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom experienced a a period of fortune that they hadn't known for nearly 200 years. And yet that the the grace of pleasure did as little to bring them back as had the grace of pain. That this one moment of God granting them prosperity was as ineffective as the countless times he had chastised them. Which is why Jeroboam's 41-year reign receives a mere six verses out of 1,500 in 1 and 2 Kings. Six out of 1,500. Even though his 41 years span nearly 20% of their history. A half of a percent of the book for 20% of the history. Because all that prosperity and all there was in that time there still wasn't anything to write home about. You want to leave a legacy? Leading people to prosperity is not how to go about it. You want to be remembered for something that matters? Money and good times is not what's going to do it. So meanwhile, Jonah looked on. Having heard God's word, having known God's grace, but having seen no change. And though we're not told that that his message to Israel included anything but this coming restoration of its borders, this golden age of grace, as a servant of God, presented here as a servant of God and, and, and as a prophet of the Most High, We have all the reason to believe that at this point in Jonah's ministry, Jonah's message of the coming prosperity 
came with the call for his people to come back to their God. But in the end, they didn't. In the end, they didn't. Which is something we ought to wrestle with ourselves. When we get to thinking that if if God only shined his face down on someone, of course they would come to him. That if God only cleaned up the world a bit, people wouldn't have so much to throw back in his face. Where in reality, it takes a lot more than just sunshine to bring a dark heart out of the darkness. And Jonah knew. Jonah knew. He had to know that he, that he was the end of the line. He was it. He was the last chance for his people to turn back to their God. That he was the last in a long line of prophets of Ahijah in the days of Jeroboam the first and and Jehu in the days of Baasha, of Micaiah and Elijah in the days of Ahab and Ahaziah and Elisha in the days of Joram. That after Joram came the only king in the northern kingdom's 200 year history that ever did anything right in the eyes of the Lord. And even he didn't get it right. But on that king's account, God said that he would wait four more generations up to the time of Jeroboam II. And listen to what God said way back with Jeroboam I. This is from 1 Kings 11. He said, if you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house, Jeroboam the first, as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. High opportunity, yet never realized. Jonah knew, he knew that he was the end of the line because no one had followed God and there was none left, bond or free, no one to help Israel. And who did Jonah see coming on the horizon? What superpower was looming large in the the geopolitical environment of those days? Through whom would God exact punishment on his people? By Jonah's day, Israel had already been a tributary of the Syrians directly to the north. But the Syrians to the north were nothing compared to the mounting force of the Assyrians in the east. And within a year of Jeroboam's death, the king under whom Jonah served, within a year of Jeroboam's death, a king would take Israel's throne and come under the Assyrian's thumb. the beginning of the end. And whether he lived through it or not, it doesn't really matter. Jonah saw saw it coming like everyone else. You can go to the British Museum today. I've been there. I've seen this. Catherine and I walked through not too long ago to see the engravings that capture the brutality of that nation, who under a man named Tiglath-Pileser III, 
one of the greatest military leaders that the world has ever seen. That they would conquer with an iron fist almost the entirety of the known world. Which is why when the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, this time telling him to go to Nineveh, the capital of that mounting Assyrian empire, rather than head east in obedience, Jonah got on a boat and headed west in defiance. And you can paint it in a number of ways. That Jonah didn't want to risk his reputation giving up on the good guys and going to the bad guys. Or didn't want to lose his, his celebrity status as the one prophet that was, that was prophesying prosperity despite the immorality, despite the ungodliness. You know, there's a certain attractiveness that comes with that. But beyond speculation, I at least think that we can say for sure that Jonah was a guy who was willing to preach grace to those he thought deserved it, but wanted nothing to do with preaching grace to those he didn't. Especially of preaching grace to those who who didn't deserve it would present a barrier if he wanted to come back and preach grace to to those who did. And here's the point. Seeing what it means in its original context of bringing it home to today, I wonder how many of us find ourselves in similar places. Deciding for ourselves who we think deserves grace and who we think doesn't. Therefore, opening up our mouths only with those who who look like us or we think would look good as a part of the body and avoiding others not only because they, they don't look like us but because the people we want to be part of our body might not come if they do. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in a similar place. The message of the book of Jonah, though, in light of what we've read in the book of Kings, goes one step further. Because by the time the book of Jonah was written, the situation into which it was written, the situation it addressed, by the time it was incorporated into the canon of Scripture, what Jonah had seen from a distance Jonah's people had already lived through. And so the book of Jonah asks not only if its readers are willing to go to those who will one day wreak havoc on others, but whether they are willing that God has gone to and extended His grace to and finally given His Son on behalf of those who have wreaked havoc on us. So though to some degree, it, 
is a book about obeying God's word. When, when we ask why Jonah ran and why a guy who had already served God in the ways that Jonah did, why a, a guy who had heard God's word before and had known God's grace throughout but, but had not seen any change, why he ran, then it's a book not only about obeying God's word but about having God's heart that we would see God's grace extended to those who wrong us as much as God has extended it to those like us who've wronged him. Even if that presents a barrier for others, or is a barrier for ourselves. So I want you to keep your eyes open this week. Here's where it hits home. For the person or people in your life that have hurt you the most, with perhaps an atrocity that is so evil it cannot even be named, who are the hardest to forgive and the hardest to extend grace to. And I want you to find a moment that you can approach them or call them if appropriate or contact them, connect with them over email or Facebook or whatever or write a letter or have someone else mediate for you. And I challenge you in light of this book to tell them that as much as they've hurt you, the grace of God, and by implication, your grace as well, extends to them also. That you will not hold them accountable. As much as there may be consequences, consequences that live on, that you will not hold them accountable and that the invitation stands for them to turn back to the one who has already done so in Jesus. Who's turned to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the challenge of this book is deep and hard and admittedly beyond all of us. That seeing Jonah run in this light makes us want to run too. pray, though, that we would know your grace enough that it would push us to not turn from you, but to go for you. And I'd pray you'd do it for your good glory and our world's good and our good as well. Amen. I was reminded this week of the story of Louis Zamperini, the, the Olympic runner who ended up as a POW in uh, World War II. 
who after the war spent many years looking for the guard who had inflicted so much unbelievable pain on his life in order that he might forgive him. I pray you go today reflecting something of that forgiveness in your own life, but even more so reflecting the forgiveness of the one who hung on the tree and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.